Well, good morning. It is good to meet together in this way and to be able to look into God's Word together and to see what He would teach us uh, through His Son, Jesus, and through His servant, Matthew, as we continue in our series on Matthew. And I suppose, looking at it now, this uh, sermon I'm titling, When Justice is Victorious, subtitled The Compassionate Mission of Jesus. And I suppose if I was to redo the last three messages in Matthew, or the last two plus this one, um, I may do it as a three-part series without interruption, and I would probably go back and rename them The Compassionate Call of Jesus, which if you remember was, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy, and I will give you rest. Followed up by The Compassionate Law of Jesus, which we saw last week was, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, Matthew 12, 7. And then this one this week would be the compassionate mission of Jesus, our key text being Matthew 12, 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And so we're going to look today at the compassionate mission of Jesus and what that mission means to bring about the victory of justice. Because this is our problem. We're living in a cultural moment where justice has become the issue of the day, or more accurate, injustice has become the issue of the day. What has become apparent to everyone is that we have been living in a society and in a culture that has tolerated and sustained a thick layer of systemic injustice just below its surface. This has all come to the surface and been exposed in nations that for decade upon decade have, in most areas of society, be considered nations of law and order and justice. If you think about it, the global narrative of America and Canada and most of Western Europe is that we have always been the good guys. We are the success stories of unprecedented democracy, of individualism, of ever-increasing freedom and prosperity. We fought the world wars against the communists and the Nazis. We established the UN and the World Health Organization. We always send troops to keep peace in troubled regions. We intervene to protect civilians caught in territorial wars. We are nations that pride ourselves on justice. And yet, what has been simmering for decades and boiling over time and again since the 1930s and even earlier is the reality that even the most modern, most sophisticated, most educated, most free countries still struggle with deep-rooted issues of systemic injustice. Racism may be the worst in, in the current spotlight, but let's not kid ourselves that racism is the only area of injustice in our societies. Before racial injustice was on the front pages, it was economic injustice. You remember Wall Street and Jeff Bezos and the billionaires and the one percenters and Occupy Wall Street and then the Panama Papers. Does anyone even remember the Panama Papers where it was uncovered that thousands of very wealthy politicians and celebrities had sheltered several trillion dollars of public tax money in shell companies in Panama? And absolutely nothing happened after we found out about that. Well, that's not true. The reporter that broke the story of the Panama Papers was murdered, and then nothing happened. The reality is, there has never been a just society. 
We can paint it over with prosperity and technology for a little while, but what the current focus on racism really uncovers is that injustice and injustice has always prevailed. And I'm just mentioning the civil injustice taking place in peaceful democracies. I haven't even touched on the levels of flagrant injustice in places like North Korea and Russia or China. The reality is injustice is shot all the way through the human condition. We cannot keep fooling ourselves that we are capable of real justice over any period of time. This is clearly evident. So we humans have a problem, a deep, deep, deep problem. As a human race, we need justice. We need a way to arrive at justice. We need a time to come when justice is victorious, not only racial justice, but all justice. We should now be well aware of the fact that we cannot accomplish justice on our own. We've been trying for thousands of years. We need a justice bringer that shows us a new way. So let's consider our text today in Matthew and how the compassionate call of Jesus and the compassionate law of Jesus and now the compassionate mission of Jesus lead to the victory of justice. Let's pray before we open up our text. Father God, we thank you that we get to read your word. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to enlighten us and to remove the veil from our hearts and remove the veil from our minds so that we can know your word, know your truth, and know how to find justice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. And just as a bit of context, I just want to remind you that just before this text, we talked last week how Jesus was explaining the law of the Sabbath and how it was a compassionate law. It was a law of neighbor love and it was a law of mercy. And as a demonstration of that, he healed a man with a crippled hand on the Sabbath to show that the law was one of mercy. But verse 14 leaves off this way. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And then verse 15 picks up this way. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So let's just unpack this verse by verse and see the compassionate ministry of Jesus and how it relates to justice, which Matthew twice here, by quoting Isaiah, connects the ministry of Jesus to the prevailing of justice. It says in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So what was it that Jesus was aware of? He was aware of the fact that the Pharisees were plotting how to destroy him. And what a word that is. Not just harm him, not just silence him, not convert him to their cause, not convince him of their ideology or worldview, but the Pharisees sought to destroy him, and Jesus is aware of this. And so his response is to withdraw from there. And I want to notice two things from this. First of all, the first thing we notice is that the people that wanted to destroy Jesus were not the occupying Roman forces with their Lord Emperor 
or with their own pantheon of gods that Jesus threatened. The people who wanted to destroy Jesus were not the criminal or immoral or sinful element of Israel that felt that he was cramping their style or that he was impinging on their freedoms. Jesus faced lethal opposition from the most religious people of his day. And that's a warning. It's not an indictment of the present day church because it would have been impossible to paint all of the present day church with one brush. That wouldn't be fair. It's not an indictment against Lakeside or even against Christian people in general. It's not saying that we all would hate Jesus if he showed up, but it is simply a warning that even religious people can be enemies of the gospel, that even religious people can be enemies of Christ, can be enemies of justice if we are not careful. And in this case, the Pharisees in their blindness and pride are set up for us as a contrast to the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks that Jesus will not break or quench. And so the Pharisees are the opposite of humble and hurting. They are proud and power-seeking, and we're meant to see them as a contrast to the people who Jesus will minister to and is ministering for. But secondly, let's notice how Jesus reacts to the presence of this lethal threat. To those that want to attack him, he withdraws, and he continues to do his ministry of compassion, and he keeps a low profile. There are times when Jesus confronts the Pharisees. He doesn't always withdraw. But for the most part, when they are off after him, it's not Jesus' desire to stand and fight in order simply to win. Jesus takes a gentle and a non-violent, even a non-confrontational approach. Jesus moves on to softer ground and he spends his energy on his ministry of compassion. He does not spend his energy on confrontation. And so we need to learn from that. That as we minister like Jesus does, we spend our energy more on compassion and less on confrontation. Verse 17 goes on and says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. In other words, Jesus's behavior was such that it fulfilled what Isaiah said would be true about him. And we've seen this many times already in Matthew, and we're only halfway through, that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the one that Israel has been waiting for. And Matthew simply connects the dots for his reader here. He says, look, you see how Jesus ministered. You see how Jesus speaks and how he acts. It's exactly as we were told to expect by our prophets. But let's look at what it was that Isaiah said about Jesus. It says, quoting Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And there are also two things, I think, in this verse that are important to draw out. The first thing in this verse that we should notice is the link between the adjectives describing Jesus. This is a quote from Isaiah in which God the Father is speaking about his chosen servant, Jesus being that servant. And the father describes his servant, and we need to remember that servant is the word that's used, and servant means exactly what it sounds like, someone who is doing your work. Your servant is the one who works for you. And so the father describes Jesus as the one who is the person who is doing his work. He describes him this way. He says, I have chosen him. He's my beloved. I am well pleased, and I put my spirit on him. And there's linkages to these adjectives that Jesus, or that God uses about Jesus. And we need to see the link between these adjectives and the pleasure of God, his choosing and his loving his servants and placing his spirit on them. 
to me, this is the source of the identity and the power behind the compassionate ministry of Jesus. Jesus is, from eternity past, and has always been, the pleasurable choice of God to serve him. He's chosen by God, he's loved by God, and in his human sense, he has God's spirit placed upon him. And we saw that uh, earlier in Matthew at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and the spirit like a dove descended and rested on him. And so because he is chosen, and because he is beloved, and because he is filled with the spirit of God, Jesus then conducts his ministry of compassion and justice. And I think it's important, and I draw these out, I think it's important to see those connections because then we also see that they are the exact same words that God uses for us to describe us. We are chosen, we are loved, we are given the Spirit in order to do our ministry. This isn't only about Jesus as a servant, this is about us as well. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 and verse 13 says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose of his will. And then verse 13 goes on. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are chosen. We are loved. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if you keep reading through Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, you will see that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation, that we have good works prepared in advance for us to do. And many other times we're told that we have a compassionate, humble, gentle, and kind gospel ministry to undertake while we are here on earth. So that's the first thing we want to set our minds on here in this text, is the linkage of those words, but not just the words, the reality that Jesus and we are chosen and loved by God and given his spirit, and that it is the pleasure of God that he would give us these things that we would minister and do the work that he has set before us. That's the first thing in that text. But secondly, we have to unpack the end of the verse. It says of Jesus specifically, the servant who is chosen, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in today's climate, we really have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does it mean that that Jesus is going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles? Does it mean that he's just going to advocate for greater fairness? Does it mean that Jesus is going to straighten out corrupt political systems? Is Jesus going to propose uh, good law enforcement policies? Is he going to recommend equitable tax and banking laws? Does it mean that he's going to raise the awareness of injustice or unjust cultural realities? We need some idea of what this means. How is Jesus going to proclaim justice? How do we see that Jesus proclaims justice? Because this is what we need. We need someone to tell us what justice is and to get it into our country and into our lives. So this is our problem. We need a world, we live in a world that has not been able to arrive at widespread and lasting system of justice ever in our history. And so we need Jesus to proclaim justice and we need justice to ultimately be victorious. To get to what Matthew means or what Isaiah might mean by proclaiming justice to the Gentiles, we can see that we have it in two contexts. Isaiah said it in his original context and Matthew Matthew specifically uses it here in his context. And so let's very quickly just consider what it can mean to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
Isaiah says it a little more literally this way, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so Isaiah has in mind the idea that Jesus is going to be the arbiter of justice to the nations. And Isaiah is thinking, as most Old Testament prophets are, of sort of a second coming, a last days type of prophecy. That there is a day coming when Jesus is going to be the arbiter of justice to the nations. He's going to judge the nations and justice will be done. He will sort out all of the wrongs. And so that's also reflected in the final sentence that Matthew quotes. In his name the Gentiles will hope. Well, when Isaiah writes that, he writes it a little more literally. And the coastlands will wait for his law. And so the coastlands were what Israel considered Gentile nations. And so Isaiah, again, is thinking in terms of uh, the world is waiting for Jesus to come or for the Messiah to come, the chosen servant to come, and he is going to distribute justice. And they are going to wait on him or they're going to attend him to hear what justice is and to hear his law. That was, that was Isaiah's thinking, is that Jesus is the arbiter of a future reality where his justice prevails. And that's true. But Matthew quotes what Isaiah says, and what Isaiah probably saw as a last day prophecy. And as we've already seen many times, when, when Matthew quotes prophecy, he says, it's already here. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. This isn't just about the second coming. This isn't just about the final inauguration of the kingdom. This is about the breaking in of the kingdom now. This is referring to Jesus now. He is now proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. That's why Matthew puts it in his gospel now, following Jesus' teaching on the compassionate law. In the context that Matthew puts the quote in, we can see that the justice that Jesus proclaims is the right interpretation of the law. The justice that Jesus proclaims is the compassion of the law, the law of healing on the Sabbath, the law of neighbor love and of mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus isn't simply proclaiming that there will be a final judgment and justice will eventually prevail in the future. Matthew says that this justice is coming to the world right now and that the justice that the world needs is the justice of Jesus, of God's merciful law, of a biblical worldview. Justice will prevail when the words and the work of Jesus prevail. But we find additional context for what justice Jesus is talking about and the core or the heart of the nature of this justice directly in the text itself as we read on. The next two verses tell us how this justice prevails. He says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Remember, we touched on this earlier, and this just reinforces the reality of both the nature of Jesus and the quality of his form of justice. As God's servant proclaiming justice, Jesus is humble and quiet and yet ultimately victorious. Jesus is not organizing protests in the streets. And I want to pause there because I want to be extremely clear on this. I don't say that, and the scripture doesn't say that, to paint the current protests as being wrong. Scriptures do not rule out protesting in the way that some people are protesting now. Scripture isn't meant to be interpreted or proof texted quite that simplistically. You can't just pick one phrase out of the scripture and say, aha, there, you see, we're not supposed to be in the streets protesting. Maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should be. One verse doesn't tell us. What we do know is that the freedom of people to speak and to be heard and for the oppressed to have their voice listened to is also scriptural. So let's not forget that we as Christians are literally called Protestants. We're Protestants. The Protestant Reformation was born out of protest. 
And so as Protestants, we can appreciate and support a peaceful yet powerful protest. Notice, rather than focusing on his voice being heard in the street, notice the key text. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. This is the heart of what it's getting at. What we don't want to be as Protestants or protesters is quarrelsome and obnoxious and strident. It is not the main purpose of our ministry to be opposed to things or against things. This part of the text tells us what Jesus' ministry and what our ministry is not meant to be. It's not meant to be quarrelsome. It's not meant to be loud and strident and obnoxious. We're not meant to spend our energy defending ourselves, but we are meant to spend our energy bringing good news to others. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, our response to threats, our response to injustice, especially when it's directed directly at us and not at others, will be like Jesus when he was threatened himself. We will move away. We will turn aside. We will spend our energy on justice for others and on the gospel and on mercy and on healing and on compassion. And that is made evidence and underlined and made even stronger in the next section of text. After learning that Jesus's ministry and our ministry should not be strident and loud and quarrelsome, we see most powerfully described in the next verse what it is. Verse 20, our key text. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. This is a picture of the bringing about of victory to justice or of victorious justice. And there is a link between concepts here that we should make a note of. The link between weak and broken people and the arrival of justice, right? Those two are inexplicably, inextricably linked here, right? Justice is victorious or the bringing about of justice is linked to the bruised reed and the smoldering wick or the weak person or the marginalized person. So justice, according to this text, justice, according to Matthew, justice as proclaimed by Jesus is when the weak and the weary, when the bruised and the smoldering are not broken or quenched. Justice is the contrast of that. Justice that Jesus proclaimed proclaims is when the bruised are restored and the smoldering are rekindled. What we have seen in the last sermons on this section of text that Matthew summarizes for us here is that the justice of Jesus, that justice that Jesus proclaims is one and the same as the compassionate law of Christ, ministered by those who follow the compassionate call of Christ. And Jesus is going to continue this ministry of healing the bruised and restoring the smoldering for a long time. The text here says that he is not going to stop his ministry until finally he brings justice to victory. That's what we long for, right? That's what, that's what we started talking about. That's how it all got started. Knowing that justice has not been victorious for a very, very long time. That there are whole systems and structures of injustice in our world and in our communities. And, and let's be honest, structures and systems of injustice and behaviors of injustice in our families and in our hearts as well. Spouses are unjustly wounded. Children are unjustly treated. Anger is unjustly directed. Psalm 34, 16 to 18 is almost a, a parallel of Isaiah's prophecy and a companion to this text, and it speaks to the heart of the Father. Psalm 34 says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
When the righteous cry for help, the Lord heals and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You see, if our hearts are like God's, then we are opposed to evil and we are near to those who are suffering. We long for justice in our nation, but we long for it in our own homes too. And Jesus says, I am proclaiming it. Hear my compassionate call. Learn my compassionate law. Follow my compassionate ministry. This is what brings justice to victory. It's not fully here yet, but it's breaking into the world. The justice that I'm proclaiming is the justice of binding up the brokenhearted. It is the justice of rescuing the bruised reed. It is the, it is the justice of rekindling the smoldering wick. That is what the justice of Jesus is. It is the good news of healing and reconciliation. It is the good news of the gospel. You see the end of justice, or you see the victory of justice when you see the end of women treated as second-class citizens, when you see the end of violent treatment of enemies or subordinates, when you see the elevation of mercy over ritual, when you see the end of ethnic distinctions, when you see the value of every person as an image-bearer of God, when you see the equalizing of duty in marriage. And I could go on and on in very practical ways in which the teaching of the Scriptures and the teaching of Jesus and His disciples was revolutionary in terms of justice. But at the heart of this text, the simple reality is that justice lies linked to how we treat the bruised and struggling people. How are we going to treat those who are weak and so oppressed that they're almost snuffed out? The prophecy and Matthew's exhortation to us ends with, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now we have to ask ourselves from this text, how are we holding out the name of Jesus to the world? Do we present Jesus in such a way that the world can hope in him, or in a way that they fear and mistrust him? Matthew and Isaiah say that justice will only finally be victorious when the Gentiles, when the world as a whole, finds its hope in Jesus when they can see that Jesus is for them and not against them. And so that makes us ask ourselves, how are we holding out Jesus? How are we presenting Jesus to the world? Are we presenting Jesus as someone they can hope in? Our hope as a nation and as a world, as a human race, is only in Jesus. That's the only place our hope can be. We know that because we've tried as a human race to find justice in political systems and systems of philosophy and all other attempts fail. Racial justice is not ultimately going to come from reformed policing policies, although those are needed. It's not ultimately going to come from better immigration laws, although those are needed as well. It isn't going to come from electing a particular government. Racial justice is only going to come when more and more and more people embrace the merciful truth of the gospel, that we are all bruised reeds and we are all smoldering wicks, that we are all sinners who fail at the compassionate law of God and need the mercy and compassion of Jesus to overtake us and overwhelm us and see ourselves not as Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all as one in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28. That is revolutionary thinking on justice in the first century, and it's still revolutionary today. But we need the hope of Jesus for more than our nations. We need it for our own families and our own lives. You know you need the hope of Jesus because you have felt bruised and like a smoldering wick for a long time. And everything you have tried to change that other than Jesus has not worked. You have tried all kinds of things and you've seen them fail. And yet some of you, are still trying. You're still trying to find hope apart from Jesus. And even though all the things you try end up leaving you feeling more bruised, 
and more broken than before. But the good news is that Jesus will not stop his ministry until justice is victorious, until righteousness reigns. It is coming, that final victory. There is a day coming, a future coming, when justice will have its full and complete victory, when those who mourn will be comforted, when the meek will inherit the earth, when those that desire righteousness will finally be satisfied, when the weeds will be gathered and burned and the righteous will shine like the sun, when every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more pain and the night will be no more. That day is coming. Jesus says, that is the hope you can have today. Stop trying to find hope and to find justice and to find reconciliation and to find peace in any other place but me. You won't find it. No matter how broken or quenched you may feel, you are never beyond hope unless you're beyond humility. If you can humble yourself, unlike those proud Pharisees, then Jesus will not break your bruised reed, nor will he quench your smoldering wick. He will heal and he will restore. Day after day, month after month, year after year, the compassionate ministry of Jesus continues through his chosen, loved, and spirit-filled servants and through his spirit in the world. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot to unpack in this text. But the core of it is clear. Your justice is the mending of the bruised and the rekindling of the smoldering. Your justice is reaching out to the marginalized and restoring those who have been oppressed and those who are struggling and suffering, the weak and the weary. So Father, as ministers of your justice, as ministers of your gospel, of your good news, as people who are chosen and loved and filled with the Spirit of the Father, it is definitely the place of the church to follow in the footsteps and the example of Jesus and to be ministers of justice, to proclaim justice to the world, justice that can only be found in the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.